0: It's a beautiful week that the Lord has blessed us with and another beautiful morning. So good to worship together with all of you this morning. It's already been mentioned here the events of this past week and especially the election in the United States to the south and we know that uh, in everything that happens the Lord is in control. He is sovereign over the nations, over the leaders of the nations and we can trust him. And one of the things that has uh, just sort of struck me in watching and following the coverage this past week, um, and so much of the the debate going um, from both sides, is that there seems to be this sense of looking to earthly leaders to solve our problems. That if we could just get the right one, well then our, then our country could be fixed, then our lives could be restored somehow. And yet we know as believers that there's no earthly leader who's going to solve our country's problems. There's no earthly leader who can solve our life's problems. There's only one leader who can do that, and his name is the Lord Jesus. He is in control. He is the only perfect leader. And when people want to argue about which politician or which earthly leader is going to solve our problems, we need to point to the true leader, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who we can look to, the perfect man who will lead us. And so we need to point to him in these, in these troubled times that our world seems to be facing. This morning we are going to continue along that theme because so much of what we talked about last week and it played into this week is this avenue we have in interceding on behalf of our nation, uh, the nations of the world, the leaders of the world, as well as the world around us and our own family, and that's through prayer. And so we're going to continue looking uh, at this very uh, important subject this morning, the subject of prayer. So would you bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this avenue to your throne of grace is wide open. You have not put any barriers between us and you. You have said, come, make your, your prayers and petitions, your requests, and we can come before your throne of grace with boldness. And so we thank you that by the blood of Jesus Christ, this way is open for us as your children. And so we come to you this morning. We thank you that you are our Father, that you hear us when we pray. And so now we ask that again, as we enter your word, and we want to hear from it, and by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead and guide. We thank you, Lord, that as we look around our world, as we see those who are, who are troubled, those who are anxious, those who are upset or angry, Lord, we thank you that as your children, we have nothing to fear. We are calm, we are at peace, because we know that you sit on the throne we don't need to look to an earthly leader to solve our problems. We look to you, and we thank you that you are in control. And so, Lord, we pray that you, the sovereign king, would be sovereign over the nations. We pray that for the nation of the United States. We pray that for our nation of Canada. Lord, would your, will, <clears throat> would your perfect will be done here, even as it is in heaven. And we pray that we, as your children, would be faithful to be obedient to the things that you prompt us to do to further your kingdom. Uh, right here in this town of Calarney. And now, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, help us to right now just take whatever distractions we brought here, uh, s- to help us to just set them aside and hear what you have for us today. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this, mor- this morning sharing with you a story of an English statesman by the name of William Gladstone. Now, William Gladstone knew of a girl in his neighborhood who believed strongly in the power of prayer. Her current concern was that her brother had constructed a trap that he was going to use to catch the songbirds in their backyard. Now, being a bird lover, she began to pray fervently that God would frustrate her brother's designs and that he would be unsuccessful in his plans to catch the songbirds in his trap. She one day shared this resolution with Gladstone and told him how fervently, how dedicated she was in her prayers that God would thwart her brother's plans. One day upon encountering her, Gladstone observed a particular radiance in her countenance. Her her face was just bright and he could tell that something was up. And so he asked her, "'Julia, you look so pleased today. Are you still confident that your prayers will be answered?' Julia smiled a knowing smile and said, Oh, I know for certain that my prayers will be answered today. Well, how can you be so certain, Gladstone pressed, to which she replied, Because yesterday I kicked my brother's trap to pieces. (laughs) Now let me ask you this morning, and this is not a rhetorical question, so feel free to respond. Do you believe that God answers prayer? Okay, well, that's good. Can I get an amen to that? Is there an amen? Good. Yes, God answers prayer. That's why we're here this morning. I don't think one of us would be in this building this morning if we didn't believe that God answers prayer. He really does. But now, even though we've just affirmed the power of prayer, I believe that it has rightly been said that prayer is the most powerful yet least utilized weapon in the Christian's arsenal. I'm going to say that again. It has been said that prayer is the most powerful, yet least utilized weapon in the Christian's arsenal. And much of this is due to a false or simply incomplete view of what prayer is, who we are praying to, and how it is intended to be used. The girl in the opening story is a good example of that. We can so easily become impatient in waiting for God's response, and sometimes we feel the need to take matters into our own hands. But even though that girl had much more to learn about prayer and waiting on the Lord's timing in answering those prayers, the one thing I will say is that at least she was praying. She was going to the right place. I find it extremely interesting that as we read through the Gospels, Jesus' 12 disciples were never characterized as men of prayer. In fact, once I began looking for instances where it says that the disciples prayed, it is glaring by its absence. It simply cannot be found in the pages of the Gospels. Jesus is praying constantly, but the disciples, while well, not so much. Now, to be clear, they often watch Jesus pray, they listen to him pray, but they didn't enter into prayer themselves, at least it's not recorded. There's one account in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus' disciples have been trying to cast out a demon. And this man had come to the disciples with his son who had this unclean spirit. It's called a, a deaf and a mute spirit. They attempted to cast this unclean spirit out of the boy, but they were unable to do so. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he then immediately commands this deaf and mute spirit to leave the boy, and it does immediately. And later on in private, when the disciples asked Jesus, Well, what? Well, Why weren't we able to? You gave us power to do it elsewhere and we were successful in driving out unclean spirits. Why not this one? And you might remember what Jesus' reply was. His reply was, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, he's not saying it directly, but indirectly, he's inferring that the disciples had failed because they had not been praying. And as with most things... Well, the disciples were a little slow to catch on to the importance and the power of prayer. Because we see later on that in the hour of Jesus' greatest need in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus even asks his disciples directly, this is as straightforward as you can get, he asks them directly, pray with me, pray with me, Jesus pleads. Intercede on my behalf, pray with me. What do the disciples do? Well, we know, instead of dropping to their knees in prayer, they get comfortable and drift off to sleep. But aren't we much the same much of the time? Yes, we know that prayer is important. Yes, we know that Jesus modeled prayer. And yes, we know that he has told us to pray. He has taught us to pray. But like the disciples, we fail to pray so often. But thankfully for the disciples, that wasn't the end of the story either. And it doesn't have to be for us. Because when we pick up the disciples' story later on after Jesus' death and resurrection, we look in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 14, and we actually just touched on it in our men's class in Sunday school this morning. There's this great verse that, that sums up now the disciples' newfound appreciation for prayer that simply says in Acts 1, 14, they all join together in prayer constantly. What a change from these guys who couldn't even pray with Jesus for, for a few minutes to now, these men are praying constantly, we read. And so if we want to learn to pray like the disciples, if we want to learn to pray like Jesus, then let's learn from the Master. Last week, we looked at Jesus' instructions in verses 5 to 8. And there we summed it up with, this is how not to pray. And so now this week, we want to move from the negative to the positive. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, we read, These words of Jesus. This, then, is how you should pray. And that's what we want to focus on from this point forward. How you should pray. Now, the model for prayer that Jesus gave his followers that day can be divided into two sets of three elements each. The first three elements, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. They all deal with God and his glory that is where prayer must begin. It begins with God, his glory, his will, his kingdom. The second set of three elements then focuses on us. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts or trespasses, and lead us not into temptation. All of these things are for us, for our good, for our benefit. And so we see this template before us. Prayer begins with the character of God, And the reason we pray, and the reason God answers, is to put himself and his glory on display. Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Incidentally, about half of the words in this prayer are devoted to who God is, and the other half is focused on our needs. This is a good ratio to keep in mind when we go into prayer as well, because how often is our ratio just on our needs. The second half of the prayer is where we begin, and the first half gets neglected altogether. But no, Jesus puts God, who he is, his glory, his kingdom, his name, comes first. And that's where we need to begin in our prayers as well. But now we're going to go to the very beginning, the opening line of the prayer in verse 9, where Jesus says, This then is how you should pray, and begins the prayer. We all know it. Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Opening line of the prayer, we've all said it a thousand times, if not more. It's just kind of getting into the meat of the prayer, right? There's not much here, is there? Well, no, there's actually a lot here. This is a jam-packed opening line. In fact, not even the line itself, the first two words of this prayer. One theologian said, if we get the first two words of this prayer right then we get everything else right as well. But if we miss the first two words of this prayer, then we miss everything. What are those first two words? Our Father. Our Father. I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, for so much of my early life, when I would hear sermons like this on prayer, I began to develop this false notion that in order for me to have a strong prayer life, I needed to condition myself, I needed to discipline myself to being okay with silence and boredom. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. That is, what I, that is how I viewed prayer. If I wanted to be a prayer warrior, I had to be okay with boredom. And anyone else willing to admit that, that that's ever been your view of prayer? It's kind of boring. It's kind of like I'm sitting here, it's quiet, what am I supposed to do? Is someone listening? Is someone talking? I'm kind of bored. Look, there's a squirrel in the tree, and off we go. Right? That was my view of prayer. I thought of it as something that, if I want to be a prayer warrior, I've got to be willing to be bored out of my mind for hours on end. Now, much like the 12 disciples, I too am a slow learner, but I have been learning, slowly, gradually, and over the years, I've been learning more and more about who God really is. And as I've been learning more about who God really is, prayer has become anything but boring. Silent, sometimes, yes, but boring, never. Because you see, powerful prayer begins with a proper understanding of something very simple. It's something that any child can grasp. It begins with knowing who we are praying to. Who are we talking to? Two. Once we know that, it makes all the difference. Larry Crabb, a theologian, writes this. Efforts to worship God without first getting to know God tend to reduce worship to a mere appreciation when God cooperates with our agenda. Do you follow that? When we only view God as someone to be appreciated when he gives us what we think we need, when he cooperates with our agenda, we have a false view of who this God is that we are praying to. Let me just tell you a few things that I have learned of who God is not. God is not a cold or distant deity who made us and then just sent us off into the universe to fend for ourselves. God is not a Santa Claus in the sky that we have to be good for in order to earn his presence. God is not a prayer slot machine where if we just feed in enough quarters, we'll eventually win something. God is not an overbearing school teacher who is ready to wrap my knuckles the second I mess up, nor is God a buddy in the sky that I have to hound in order to help me out. No, God is none of those things. Instead, Jesus told us who God is. He is our Father. And he's not just like a good earthly father. No, he is our Father in heaven. And this means that he is perfect, and his heavenly storerooms of provision for us are limitless. He is our Father in heaven. This is how Jesus revealed God to us, and this is how we are to address him. Now, I know for some of us this can be a complicated issue because to varying degrees, our earthly fathers are not perfect, some less so than others, but I want to just tell you that if you had an earthly father or have an earthly father who has anything good in him, that there's something that you can see in your father that you have been blessed by, that your life is the better for today, that is because in some way he has mirrored the perfect father in heaven. And wherever your earthly father has failed, your heavenly father will never and can never fail you in this regard. He is the perfect father, and this is why we pray to our Father in Heaven. He is perfect in all of His ways, and unlike an earthly father who can fail, He will never fail. He is our Father, and we address Him as such. And Jesus modeled this for us, and we see that throughout his prayers that are recorded in the Gospels, he always addressed God as his Father. In fact, we see that he used this phrase more than 70 different times. Now, this might seem just normal to us because we've learned to pray that way. We, we grew up addressing God as our Father. But in the context of Jesus' day, this was extremely unique because the religious people of Jesus' day didn't address God this way. The rabbis of Jesus' time, all of the others, would use very lofty, exalted language. They would say things like, King of the universe, Sovereign Lord. They would use many other exalted titles, none of them wrong. None of them wrong. But the term Father was seen by them as being too ordinary or that it was getting too familiar, too intimate with God. And yet the only recorded prayer that Jesus ever made without referring to God as his Father was when on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time. But even there, when we look at it closer, we know that he was actually quoting the psalmist's prophetic words about him. That yes, there was this time of of abandonment where it looked like everything was lost and he was forsaken, but the end of the psalm is triumph and restoration. And so we see that Jesus used this familiar and intimate term father because that was the very nature of their relationship. It was familiar, it was intimate, father to son. And you see when we when we read in the gospels that Jesus was off spending hours in prayer with his father, he wasn't out there bored out of his mind. He wasn't he wasn't just disciplining himself I'm praying to nobody reciting these words over and over again. No, He was out there enjoying the life-giving presence of his dad. He was out there talking to dad, talking about the game plan, talking about getting strength for the day and what the plan was for tomorrow. And so too, when we become Christians, Paul writes in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, he says that we receive the Holy Spirit who makes us children of God, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. And this new birth is required in order to have this type of relationship. Of course, we know that the word Abba is a very intimate term from the Greek. It's best translated as Daddy. Daddy. You know, I I always sort of cringe at this when I think of calling God Daddy. It just seems like it's almost irreverent somehow. But this communicates the intimacy and the nearness of God our Father, our Daddy, And the tone and nature of prayer is to be as close as a daughter on her daddy's lap, uh, uh, a son bouncing on his father's knee. Later on in the same sermon in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 7 to 11, Jesus returns again to the subject of prayer, and he underscores this fact that God is our Father, and he takes it even further in verses 9 to 10. Jesus asks the disciples, "'Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone?' Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Now, he's obviously using humor here to drive home the point. And so I'll give us a a modern version of these questions, at least as far as I'm concerned. The questions would be something like this. Which of you, if your son asks for a juice box, would give him cod liver oil? Or if he asks for a chocolate chip cookie, would give him a raisin cookie instead? (laughs) Anyone else identify with that one? (laughs) Verse 11. Jesus concludes, If you then, though you are evil, and this seems like, what? What are you calling me evil for? Well, he's making a stark contrast here. If you then, though you are evil, earthly fathers, in contrast to God's perfection, we are evil, we are fallen. But even if we as fallen fathers, and then he goes on, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven... The emphasis in heaven, your perfect father, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? And so when we ask God for something, it's not like you're asking your your hard driving boss for a day off of work. It's not like that. It's not like asking your strict teacher for an extension on your major essay that you've already asked two extensions for before. It's not like that. It's not like asking your banker for a little more time on that loan payment either. It's not like that either. No, it's more like when Theo comes up to me and he says, Daddy, have another chocolate chip cookie, please? (laughs) And I look down at him and he's already had four chocolate chip cookies. They're smeared all over his face. But he's so cute. Can I say no to that? I have a hard time saying no to that. Chances are I'm going to say yes to that. And I guarantee you that I'm not going to give him a raisin cookie. (laughs) And Jesus addressed God as his father, he taught his disciples to do the same, and in doing so, it speaks to how special our relationship with God really is. He is a perfect father who delights in us, in me, his child. Just last week, as I was getting Declan ready for a bath, uh, he's had his back turned to me as he was getting ready to, to hop in the tub, and he says to me, come here, Danny, Now, I pause because Daddy and Danny sound quite similar, right? And so I say, what did you call me? And he says, Danny, that's your name, right, Dad? (laughs) And so I pause for a second, and I'm thinking about the implications of this, and I said to him, yes, that is my name, you're right. But everyone else can call me that. But did you know that there are only two boys in the whole world who can call me Daddy? Only you and Theo. Only you can call me your dad. That's pretty special. So that's what I want you to call me. And then he turns and he gives me a big hug and he says, okay, Dad. And I can just tell you that that simple moment, as a father, that simple moment was far more special to me than I can tell you in words. You see, the thing is, we can correctly call God King of the Universe, just as Declan could correctly address me as Danny. That is my name. But when he's talking to me, he's not just talking to Danny, he's talking to his dad. And there's a difference. And so, too, when we're talking to the King of the Universe, we're not just talking to the King of the Universe, we're talking to our dad. We're talking to our Father in heaven. And that means that I am one of his kids. I am one of his dearly beloved children. And so I just hope that you're beginning to see that far from being an insignificant introductory line to the rest of the prayer, that when we pray our Father, it makes all the difference in the world. Now this next portion of the sermon that I want to share with you this morning... Uh Felicia and Zoe are not present here this morning, but they gave their blessing to share this with you, and they, and they asked, in fact, that I would share this with you. Uh, many of you were present uh, two, uh, two weeks ago, Saturday morning, of our church's uh, missions weekend. For those of you that were there, uh, you heard the interview that I conducted with Zoe and Felicia. And as difficult as it was for them to share about their experiences life, they courageously shared with us about some of the tragic and dangerous and difficult experiences that they've been through as refugees in Africa. For those of you who are present, nothing more needs to be said beyond that. But for those of you that weren't there that morning, I will summarize by saying that we simply have no idea or concept of what they have endured. After Zoe's father converted from Islam to Christianity, he was a marked man. He had to flee with his family for their safety, And after some years of being away, thinking that it would now be safe to return home, he returned home with his wife and his oldest daughter, Zoe. And his own brothers initially pretended to welcome him. And then they killed him, along with his wife. And Zoe ran, escaping with only her life. Felicia's story includes fleeing with her family into the wilds to escape a barbaric custom imposed on the women of her tribe. She was eventually captured where unspeakable things were done to her. From 1991 and onward, they both lived the lives of refugees, where basic survival was the order of the day. And they shared how so many times along the way, people would mock them by saying things like, where is your God? Where is he? Where is he to take care of you? Why doesn't he help you? But in all of that, they held on to their faith in God, and God held on to them. Eventually, Zoe and Felicia met each other in a refugee camp in Ivory Coast, where they banded together for mutual support. But then civil war struck the Ivory Coast as well in the fall of 2010, and in the chaos and in the confusion that followed, Felicia decided it was safest and best to send her children with her sisters back into Liberia while she remained in Ivory Coast. In the confusion that followed, they lost contact with each other, and just two weeks ago Saturday, many of us were present and we heard Felicia share with the emotion that only a mother can have for her, ch- for her children, that she did not know where they were, and that she had not seen or heard one word from them in six years. If you're a parent here today, you can't imagine what that must have been like. And in that moment, all I could say was to encourage us to pray for her children and specifically that they could be found. And I know that many of you have been doing so. And so this morning, I know that some of you are already aware of this, but it's my great and uh, just incredible privilege to share with you on Felicia's behalf that those prayers have been answered and that after six long years, her children have been found. Isn't that incredible? It is just, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thursday morning, I got a text from Felicia saying, I have incredible news. You need to come over. So I go over, and she just ran out of the house. She wrapped me up in a bear hug. She, I couldn't even get it out of her. Like, something bad happened because she was crying. She was just over the moon with joy. Uh, it turns out, an old friend in the city of Abidjan, the capital city of Ivory Coast... She had left the news um, with as many people as she could that she was moving to Canada. And she had left the names and descriptions of her children with as many people as possible before leaving, and this, this friend in Abidjan was one of them. And this friend in Abidjan had never met Felicia's children before, and so all she had was a description and some names. Now, the city of Abidjan is a mega city. There's over 10 million people living in a sprawling uh, urban landscape. So the odds of finding someone in there is a needle in a haystack. But nonetheless, one day she had noticed a young woman walk by in the street who just happened to look like Felicia. And here Felicia told me that her one daughter is like a photocopy of her. That's what she said. She's like a photocopy of her, a, a image. And so noticing the resemblance, she had ran over. She had grabbed her and said, What's your name? What's your name? And the girl had been, What are you talking about? She had told her her name. And sure enough, it was her. And uh, she told her, I have amazing news for you. I know where your mother is. She's in Canada. And she said, What? And she said, Yes, she's in Canada. And she said, What? And and it had gone on and on like that for a long time. And finally, they got on the phone call. Uh, I asked Felicia if she'd been able to talk with all three of her children over the phone, and she said that there had just been no words. There had just been no words. There were shrieks, there were tears of joy, there was laughter, there were more tears and more shrieks. After six years of waiting and wondering and praying and hoping and praying, she said it was just like a dream. She's been on cloud nine ever since. Let me just ask you again, my friends. Do we believe God answers prayer? He does. He does. And let me, just, let me just say, if we're not convinced, if we're not fully persuaded, if we don't truly believe that our prayers are heard by an almighty God who cares and answers, how much more persuasion do we need? Because if we are truly convinced that this loving Father in heaven hears our prayers, and even if we can't see it today or tomorrow, we keep praying because we know Our Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven, is working it out according to His will and His time. And Jesus' statement, And when you pray, oh, it becomes not only a daily reality, but it becomes an hour-by-hour and even a minute-by-minute reality. Prayer goes from being the most powerful yet underutilized weapon in the Christian's arsenal And it turns into the one thing that you can't live without and that nothing and no one can take from you. It's when the Apostle Paul's admonition to pray without ceasing becomes not just a lofty ideal, not just an over-exaggeration to make a point, but it becomes a way of life. And so whether at home in your prayer closet, whether in your car, whether on the school bus, whether in the tractor, in class, at work, or just walking down the street, we can pray with confidence, our Father. And we can know that our prayers are heard by a Father in Heaven who delights in hearing from His children and delights in blessing them with good things, for His glory and for our blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege and an honor to share... For your glory, the way that you have answered prayer on Felicia's behalf. Father, we are humbled to, to think that we even played a small part in this, of your plan for their good and for the reuniting of that family. It is a wonderful thing, Lord, to be a part of when you were at work. And so, Father, we just give you glory. We give you all glory and praise that you are working for the good of your children and that when we pray, you hear. And you are working. You are working. You are organizing. You are orchestrating everything behind the scenes, even when we can't see, to bring about the answer according to your perfect will and in your perfect time. And so we thank you, Lord. I pray that this morning you would increase our measure of faith, our complete conviction and persuasion, that when we pray, our Father, you are bending an ear. You are listening like a father stooping down to hear his child better. Oh, how you stoop down, you condescend to hear us, even when our, our prayers are so feeble sometimes. And then all we, can, all we can muster out is help. Even that prayer, you hear and you respond. Oh Lord, increase our measure of faith. Increase the volume and the capacity of our prayers that we would pray without ceasing.